Thank you, Clark. You're very generous. And uh, this lecture is going to uh, focus a lot, uh, as I said, it's the, the church culture and change. So uh, you might feel if you're not a church person, well, what's that got to do with me? But it was interesting. Uh, I and a couple of other of us, of us here last night were at a lecture at the, at the university. It was put on by the Center for Studies in Religion and Society, and it was on the environment. And uh, one of the chief guys, one of the people on the panel, who was the most vocal, you might say, uh, anti-Christian stance, mm -hmm. by the end of the evening was asking the church to take a, a stronger stand because he felt it really had a role to play. So here was a person who basically described himself as a pagan or an animist, and he was saying, well, the church has a role to play. So even if you're not a believer or a church person this evening, uh, this might uh, uh, be relevant for you. Uh, as, it, as just as it, as it hopefully I hope it will be for those of you who are uh, members of the church and believers. Um, I'm going to pray first, and then we will begin. Dear God, we thank you <coughs> that you have created us and given us this world in which to live. And we thank you that you have, as part of your plan to rescue this world, created uh, a body, a family, your church. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us as we look at the interaction between the church and the world, that we would see how the church is to proceed to avoid the negative things and to pick up on the positive things. And this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs> So, this lecture is an adaptation of material I used as part of a course on mission in context for uh, trainee clergy, uh, ordination candidates at St. John's College in Manitoba, which is where I was for almost 10 years in 2009. And it in turn was based on my thesis for my Doctor of Ministry in Church Growth and Congregational Development from Fuller Seminary in Pasadena uh, in the States. And I just want to mention that I'm very proud to have had a British, Canadian, and American education. <laughs> I feel it has uh, broadened me, and I'm very excited. So I also have degrees in architecture as well as in theology. So uh, because this is, in a sense, uh, dealing with mission, um, there is the underlying theme behind all of this as to how we are to carry out God's mission in the world. And one of the crucial uh, dimensions of this is the relationship between the church and the wider world or culture and how we are able to adapt to changes in society in order to fulfill our calling. So this lecture on the church, culture and change will explore these three areas. So we'll look at Christianity and culture. Is Christ for push the right button. Is Christ for or against culture? How about Christ through culture? What about our cultural and philosophical climate? We're going to look at two paradigm shifts. We'll talk about what a paradigm is in a minute. Uh, Constantinian to post-Constantinian and from modern to postmodern. And then we will conclude by living, looking at living as a church on the margins. And we'll look at marginalization, the value of change, and the cost of change. So that's what we're going to do. 
and you can turn off if you don't want to look at all of those things. You can just focus on one or two of them, but hopefully it'll be. Anyway. So let's start then. Christianity and culture. Is Christ for or against culture? And there have been lots of discussions on this, and a chap called Niebuhr in the 1950s had a book, up, a book on it, which I assume is here and so on. He, he said there were five different positions. Well, I, I'm going to take a quite a different approach, but anyway. But one of the greatest mistakes the church has made over the centuries is to misunderstand the relationship between the church and the wider world or culture. And I'm using culture here to, as an umbrella term for how human society thinks and acts and relates its norms and its accomplishments and the first thing to note is that religion by nature is conservative i am a very conservative person i you know on those bell curves you know and there's the early adapters well i am like at the extreme end of the latest adapter i mean i didn't get a bank card uh, for years I, I didn't get my driver's license until i was 25 and so on now I do all my banking on the internet, but anyway. <laughs> so, but, so I fit right into the church. The church is very conservative. And we relate to the source of all being who is unchanging. And, we, and so we want to ensure we don't move out of that fellowship and the standards of right and wrong at the core of existence. And what's more, in the Christian faith, we are constantly warned not to depart from the truth we have received. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Thank you. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So we have an unchanging faith. And this unchanging faith is contrasted with the changing world. And the world is a complex organism always changing and mutating. We have the evolving of the seasons. The cycle of death and decay. Changes in our own bodies. I believe that Actually, we change all of our cells at least every seven years. So what you see now is not what you would have seen seven years ago. In fact, really, if you realize, if you acknowledge it, any organism that doesn't change and adapt to new situations and circumstances is likely to die. So coupled with these changes in nature are changes in society and culture which have speeded up in recent years and which we will look at in a moment. So the challenge the church faces is how to hold together and relate the unchanging message and the changing world. How do we hold together the unchanging message and the changing world? And usually the church has made the gravest of errors in this area. Sometimes the church has resisted change in anything, remaining rigid in both with no adaptation to the changing world around us. And we all know, for instance, the, uh, you know. Whoopi Goldberg, that's right. But the nun's habit, you realize the nun's habit was really the everyday dress of ladies in the 13th and 14th century. It's just they never changed. They just 
stayed the same. So probably in four or five centuries, we'll have uh, pastors or maybe women or men <laughs> standing up with uh, jackets and ties on when nobody else wears jackets and ties, just because that's the way it was always done. You know, St. Paul did it that way, so we do it as well. <laughs> but often the church has uh, changed the message and uh, to suit the contemporary culture while remaining conservative in its methods. And at other times we have changed both the message and the, and, and the method. So our problem is that we do not understand the difference between method and message. And most of this is because we have misunderstood the biblical perspective on culture and the world. We have misunderstood the biblical perspective on culture and the world. So I'm going to look now at Christ through culture, because I believe the Bible has a realistic view. I believe that Christians are neither pessimists nor optimists. We are realists. And I think that's a, a very important distinction. We are realists. God is a realist. He's neither a pessimist nor an optimist. He's a realist. And uh, but so it's positive and it's negative. And we have this demonstrated very clearly in the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 12. First, you've got one a positive view. Okay. So Genesis 1 and 2, humans are made. There was a picture taken at the time. <laughs> humans are made in the image of God with God-given capacities to relate to one another and to him and to have responsibility for running the world. And in Genesis 10, the, uh, which is called the Table of the Nations, it's all those begats and who begat whom and so on, but it really describes the, the universality of the human race, all these different groups. Um, and uh, what it implies that all are to be included and valued. And this is confirmed at the very end of the Bible when it says in reference to the new Jerusalem, our final destination, we are told that the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And when I go and teach in Ethiopia every summer, I emphasize, uh, I, I say, I don't, well, I teach uh, Anglicanism, Anglican studies, everything you wanted to know about Anglicanism, but we're afraid to ask. And uh, I said, I don't want to make you Anglicans like Canadian Anglicans or American Anglicans or European Anglicans. You know, you're going to be an Anglican in the way in which you want to be an Anglican. I'm going to give you the principles, etc., etc. But I think that you as a culture, and there are actually there are seven different, or mm -hmm. actually up to nine, seven to nine different ethnic groups yeah. in my class. I have said, using this verse, that you have something to bring to the faith, not just to Anglicanism, but to the Christian faith as, uh, at large, because the scriptures say that you will bring the glory of the nation. So things which are good in your culture, you will bring into the kingdom. It's a biblical perspective. So we see that, uh, uh, that that's a good thing about the variety uh, of, of cultures. But there's also the negative. And of course, in Genesis 3, uh, humans disobey God and sin enters the world and in the chapters following we see the, dev the devastating effects of sin and the image of God and the social expression of it culture have been marred 
so much so that in Genesis 6 to 8, God's human project is all but annihilated through the flood. There's another picture. It's amazing it survived to this day. <laughs> the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So the world is, the culture is rebooted with his covenant with Noah in chapter 9, but there is unfortunately the same negative outcome. Humans aspire to glory and security without God through the building of the Tower of Babel. And the result is a confusion of communication and their dispersion uh, throughout the world. Then, in chapter 12, we see the beginning of God's plan to redeem humanity. Christ's God's purpose in choosing Abraham is to create from him a unique and healthy culture. A unique and healthy culture. Out of the disorder of chapter 11, God takes the initiative to call out one person, Abraham, and to create from him a nation of people who will begin to think and act after God and to see reality from his perspective. And the institution of the law through Moses, there's Moses, uh, is one vehicle through which this occurs, as well as the biblical record of God's dealings with his people and the prophetic call to live God's way. And God's intention in creating a distinctive group would be who would be his chosen people was not for their benefit only, but that they might embody and communicate God's love and God's rescue plan to the whole world. As the psalmist declares, God be merciful to us and bless us, look on us with kindness so that the whole world may know your will, so that all nations may know your salvation whole world. So the rescue plan would be accomplished in the end by God becoming one of his own, Jesus, through whose death and resurrection rebellious humanity could come back to him. This is why, this is the way that all peoples would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. So, with God taking flesh in Jesus, the incarnation most of you or some of you will, will know that word, the incarnation, you know, chili con carne, that's chili with meat. So the incarnation is basically God with flesh on. That's what it is. Okay. We come to the ultimate affirmation of the value and importance of culture. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God becoming one of us demonstrates that Christianity is the most materialistic and culture-engaging religion. God actually became one of us, a specific type of human, a Jew, a male, etc., etc., very specific. And the incarnation is the logical expression, the logical extension of the physical, of the biblical view that the physical world is positive and a means through which God communicates and engages with us. Very, very important. There's been lots of movements, even within the church, but in other religions as well, where the world is negative. We've been talking at supper about some people. Where? 
supper. Yeah, we've been talking at supper about some people who just feel, well, this world is just useless. It's going to hell in a handbasket, and we shouldn't care for it. That's it. See? Well, that is heretical teaching. That is not biblical teaching. But that is what has been promulgated in the church, in some sections of the church. So this view of life that the God uses the physical world is called the sacramental view of, uh, of life. And if you want to learn more about it, I commend Harry Blamire's, his book, which is an old, old book from about 70 years ago, The Christian Mind, 60 years ago. Very, very good book. I hope you have it here. Yeah. Yes, we do. Good. So the physical engagement, this physical engagement expands to the cultural when we recognize that being a human is not only physical and spiritual, but we are, in the terms of John Stott, a blessed memory, uh, a body-soul in community. We are a body-soul in community. We are cultural beings. And so the God who embraced physicality and culture in Jesus, in turn expressed in and through culture. So. The God who embraced philosophical culture in Jesus is in turn expressed in and through culture. So God is expressed in and through culture. We need to recognize that. That's just who we are. But we also recognize that Christ is continually breaking out of culture because human culture is imperfect and no one culture can contain Christ or express Christ fully. And that's one of the reasons why we would say with a small c we are catholic christians because that means universal we don't just look at the culture through one narrow cultural lens we don't look at the faith through one narrow cultural lens north american european british whatever but we look at it through the culture the worldwide culture no one culture can contain christ or express christ fully even though some certain cultures in this world feel that they are this has been the case down through history, as we'll see. So now, let's turn to see how the church has engaged with imperfect human culture down through the ages and unhelpfully accommodated to it, which has resulted in the situation in which we now find ourselves. So, in order for us to work with God to establish the kingdom today, we need to be aware of the cultural and philosophical climate in which we do ministry. And there have been major paradigm shifts. Now, a paradigm, anybody know what a paradigm is? Yes, two, Liz. Two ten-cent pieces together. <laughs> Paradigms. Thank you so much, Liz. <laughs> Ten marks for the night. Framework. The framework, yes. A paradigm is just a framework. I'll get this. A particular way of looking at reality involving a given set of assumptions about how things ought to behave. A framework. Thank you. Okay. <coughs> paradigm shifts. There we are. Set of assumptions. So, um, there have been major paradigm shifts in the whole of the Western world. We're going to focus on the Western world because I think most of us here are in the Western world, but we're certainly living in the, in the Western world. The, 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 these paradigm shifts have had major and are having profound implications for the life of the church and how we view our mission and ministry. So we're going to examine two interrelated shifts and their effect in marginalizing the church. Well, the first shift is from Constantinian to post-Constantinian. So I'm losing diagrams here from Lauren Mead. Give him credit from his book. 
the once and future church. So the first major shift is one that is more cultural and societal. There has been a change in how the church and world interrelate. And so Lauren Mead in his book describes three paradigms of the church down through the ages. So this is, this is the apostolic paradigm. This is the first three centuries of the church where the boundary between the congregation and the world is very, very clear. You're a Christian, not a Christian. The Christian community was an intimate one, and the world beyond was often antagonistic or hostile. The mission frontier was on one's doorstep, and the role of ministry in the church and the world was seen as belonging to all members of the congregation. Everybody had a job. All right? So, so that's... Apostolic paradigm. Move very quickly on to the Constantinian paradigm, the Christendom paradigm. And this uh, next shape taken by the church, called the Christian paradigm, beginning with the conversion of Constantine and lasting to the last century. So it lasted for a long time, 1600 to uh, 1700 years. And um, the church was now closely identified with the world around it, the empire. We've got to keep in mind that it's not just the Western Empire, it's also the Eastern Empire, but that's another whole story. The boundaries have been removed, and the distinction between the sacred and the secular became blurred. Emperors convened church councils. They were actually, and some of them were, were quite strong Christians too, and they wanted to have their say. And particularly in the East, the number one Christian was the emperor. You know who the number one Christian was in the West? The Pope. Yeah. That's right. Quite different in the East. So the kingdom in the uh, West was the, uh, the church, and the kingdom in the East was the empire. But that's another whole story. Anyway, the emperors convened church councils, and bishops raised armies. The congregation was now defined not in terms of an intimate fellowship of believers, but as a region with geographical boundaries, including all the people in it, the parish. People no longer joined the church by choice but by virtue of being citizens. They were born into it. And the vastness of the empire or the church required a certain cohesiveness, which resulted in a hierarchical structure, and the church became institutionalized. And mission was now seen as a far-off enterprise with the barbarians outside the empire. And those with a special missionary calling went out to those barbarians, those Germans, the Germanic tribes, and uh, the Saracens, and everybody else. Sorry about <laughs> All right. And of course, to say nothing of those who, of us who have a British background, we were just, we were just uh, languishing in the, in the bogs. All right. Anyway. Um, so th those with a special missionary corps went uh, supported by the prayers and finances of those back home. And in this way, the calling of the layperson was to be a good citizen, obedient to superiors in church and state rule Britannia. Okay, now here is the emerging paradigm and this has shifted again and it occurred somewhat earlier in Europe and North America with English Canada ahead of the United States and Quebec up until the 1960s but Quebec has now uh, leaped ahead, uh, leapt ahead to join Europe and we are still in a state of transition. 
No longer can it be assumed that everybody is a Christian, nor are Christian values universally held, including by governments. And it's become increasingly, as the years go on, very quickly, that's not, not the case. So the frontier of mission has moved to our doorsteps again, but the situation is far more ambiguous than in the apostolic paradigm, with some hostility, some indifference, and some supportiveness, as shown in the lecture last night. Fascinating how the same person could actually show some antagonism and some support. All right. The shift in paradigms and the need for new approaches is not evident, though, to all within the church, and so there has been tension about how to proceed. That's another story. And a chap called Rodley, Rodney Clapp laments the development of Constantinianism, as he uh, says. It's undermining the church's nature and purpose. And the close identification of church and state meant that loyal Christians would be supportive of the status quo. The church and its mission had to be refined, redefined in worldly and secular terms. Now this was not changed at the Reformation because the mainline reformers allied themselves with the newly forming nation states. And so the subversion of the nature of the church and its mission continued only now more closely related to nationalism. The result was that there was a confusion of church and culture. The unique culture that the church was designed to be, salt and light in the world, was compromised. We became blind to the syncretism that had occurred between the church and secular culture, and missionary efforts at spreading the faith were automatically assumed to include the indiscriminate spread of all aspects of Western culture, whether they were reflective of biblical faith or not. And we have examples of this right here on our island. Mm -hmm. Just wondering if you could explain what syncretism means for those. Could you explain what syncretism is? Syncretism people? is a blending, a mixing. So the ideas of culture that, you know, for instance, the, the British Raj, the British Empire and so on, was the expression, the best expression you could have of Christianity. So the stiff upper lip and everything else, that became a Christian characteristic, you see. So, and uh, Queen Victoria ruling over the whole world, see, that was a Christian idea. Right, thank you, good. And so, for instance, here, you know, we, we didn't like totem poles because we thought that they were idols, and so they were banned, you see, and so on. So it was, you know, just applying things indiscriminately and just saying, well, this is the way, you know, we, uh, we do it. You know, for instance, when they, uh, the English people, I'm an English person, so, you know, you have a handkerchief. Well, when the missionaries went into Africa, the local people felt, why do they want to save it? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So there is a result. There is the confusion of uh, church and culture. And... Uh, and, and, and so, yes, sorry. So the confusion of Christians as to the nature and mission of the church under a new paradigm is a result of these shifts. Christians these days feel useless because the church feels useless. But we're not doing the same thing we did 100 years ago. And so we don't have that much to do anymore. I mean, what's the kind of things, what kind of things do we have to do if we can't take our stand, etc., and help in government and so on? Um, the church feels useless because it keeps on trying to perform Constantinian duties, this is a quote, in a world that is no longer Constantinian. 
Christians feel useless because they, know they are no longer useful for the wrong thing, namely serving as chaplains in a sponsorial religion. And we Anglicans are very good at that. What does that, what does that mean? A few Presbyterians as well. But, but generally, but you see, even that has filtered through to all the other churches. And so many churches have kind of adopted this view. So chaplains being, we take care of our own and uh, we're not really interested in reaching out to the world. We're just looking after our own people. Is that how you would define sponsorial? Well, a, 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 a sponsorial religion would be that sponsored by the government or the established culture. Now, this has all changed, of course. But the thing is, the church, because we are slow to change, we have not updated our own thinking. And so we operate often keeping these, these old, older ways of doing things in mind. So let's now look at the second shift. And this is a chap called Eddie Gibbs, uh, who was my supervisor. And it's intertwined with the first. And we're now moving from the cultural and the societal of the first shift to the philosophical impetus behind the latter. And this is the change from modernity to postmodernity. And in pre-modern, pre-modern, modern, postmodern. So in pre-modern or traditional societies, religion occupies a central place in the community. And we can see that in the diagram up there, traditional position. Uh, and the church occupies a prestigious place. And these still exist around the world. And this was indeed the situation in Quebec until the 1960s. Very, very much so. And as a more positive philosophical expression of Constantinianism, pre-modernism stood for a unified view of the world with God at the center about whom, around whom all things revolved. So that was the pre-modern society. And you see some of it around the world today. And with the advent of the Renaissance and the Reformation and their child, the Enlightenment, modernity was born. Humanity replaced God as the center of concern and rationalism reigned supreme as the sole arbiter of truth. And this is expressed in the 16th and 17th century philosopher Descartes' Max dictum, I think, therefore I am. We just take that for granted. But I'm gonna show you how that's not very helpful. Autonomous human rationality was now the means through which reality was seen. Thus, the age of modernity heightened the value of the individual, personal choice, and the development of plurality of choice. As a result, life was, was divided into the public and private spheres, and religion was allocated to the latter, the private sphere. You have your beliefs, I have mine, and then there's the real world. If you want to follow that up with a, a modern author, you can look at uh, Tom Wright's book, uh, Simply Good News, which I'm sure we have here in the library. So that's the modern position. That's the modern position. But, uh, so, and, and with the uh, development of Darwinian thinking, progress in human affairs was seen as inevitable. We're always getting better and better and better. Religious faith became relativized. We were on the sidelines. There we are. We were no longer in the middle, but we're on the sidelines. Uh, we're helpful as a resource for coping with the crisis, with the crises of life, much as our doctor friend last night was. He, you know, he, he saw that there was a value, and he's right. There was a value. 
but really having no legitimacy in claiming public truth, but which they're on the side on the sidelines. And we actually had a, a monopoly at that point. There was nobody else around, so we had a monopoly, but we were on the sidelines. But not only was the church relativized, it too succumbed to modernism. One thinks immediately of liberalism, which developed as a capitulation to the excessive demands of reason. If I haven't experienced or seen a resurrection, it can't have happened. It doesn't make sense. My reason tells me it doesn't work. Miracles, I don't believe in them, therefore they haven't happened. Reason is the ultimate uh, arbiter of truth. And the liberals would kind of go along with that. And that was very strong in the 1800s, early, mid, early 1900s. But it also affected evangelicalism, which many of us here would identify with. Evangelicalism uh, was actually subverted by modernism. And many people have pointed out that uh, this takes place. And I want to quote particularly from uh, Os Guinness, Dining with the Devil. Uh, he said, evangelicals and fundamentalists have become the most worldly tradition in the church. And uh, using the tools of their opponents, reason and scientific criteria, and I'm one of these people, yeah, people. Christian apologists, both liberal and evangelical, began to cast the faith solely in, in, in analytical terms. The faith is analytical give all the arguments and those of us who are in the later part of life we will remember that all the big defenses of the faith and uh, we pit propositional truth against intuition revelation and mystery so it's a bit like the lord of the rings analogy the frodo syndrome that you carry the ring but the ring affects you and takes away you see so we carried we defended the faith, but we did it in such a way that we actually began to erode the faith and parts of it. Anyway, now, the re more about this in a minute. The reaction to modernism, post-modernism, that we have at the bottom, has surfaced as a significant philosophical movement over the past 70 years and has affected popular culture in the last 45 or so. I know the debates is whether it's finished or whether it's just a subset of modernism and so on, but we're stuck with it. So, um, The Western soul began to see its impoverishment with a truncated view of truth and reality offered by independent reason and the empirical method alone. You can't just analyze your way. You know, analyzing a kiss, you know, yes, well, it's this molecule, that cell of, of her mouth touches that cell of my mouth, and so on, and that's, that's what a kiss is. Well, you kind of, you do it to death, right? So, the 20th century brought great technological advance, but with it, the horror and prospect of self-destruction. The most intelligent, quote, intelligent or scientific or rational nations on Earth were the ones who fought the worst wars. So this horror and self-destruction arose from the same scientific progress that gave birth to its advance. People began to see that there were dimensions of apprehending truth that were missing, such as intuition and revelation. 
However, without any overarching framework for truth, no grand story, the perception of reality has become fragmented. There we go, these little fragments there. Something may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Truth is now attempted through consensus, Canadian values, Quebec values, but this is probably the worst time in the world to have consensus of values, because everybody has their own values. Unless you disagree with mine, and then, anyway, another story. <laughs> so, truth, as I said, it's basically consensus and whatever, but it's also said to be, yes, we have consensus, but it's kind of whatever works for you. But how can you have consensus if you're saying, well, whatever works for you? Doesn't work for me. I have consensus. So reason is displaced by reasons, each with its own discourse and for its own public. None is privileged. The rational project begun in the 17th century has collapsed, leaving a field of competing rationalities. Quoted by Gibbs. So the New Age movement is an expression of this new perception of reality and its emphasis on experience and the mystical intuition rather than analysis, head, heart rather than head. And the positive results in Christianity are a new openness to the supernatural and the work of the Holy Spirit, an increasing interest in prayer and the development of the inner life. Now, for those of you who are not my age, if you were to mention, say to somebody in the 1960s or 70s, I will pray for you, they would have been highly insulted. You're imposing your religion on me. Nowadays, that is not the case. So in the olden days, we would have, uh, at McGill Christian Fellowship, we had a book table in the student union. And we had the Marxist-Leninists on one side and the Trotskyites on the other, and we kept the peace between the two of them. And we had all our defenses of the faith, all our reasons, our books, and we were pushing our books. Now, there's nothing wrong with reasoning. But you know what happened in the 1990s? The Girl Christian Fellowship quietly dropped the book table and set up a prayer table to offer prayer for people, the idea of service. And of course, prayer was quite, but by this point, is now a legitimate uh, experience. But you couldn't have done that in the 1960s. They would have had said, hi, why are you bringing prayer into the student union? He'd say, thank you very much. All right. So. There is a new awareness of the value of the feminine. I won't go into this now, but uh, intuition and the feminine, uh, very, very important. It's half of what humanity is. And, uh, but the negative result of the, of the postmodern world is the church has become even more just one choice amongst many. There we are, just one choice amongst many. Seemingly irrelevant because of its capitulation to modernism has compromised its message and reason for being uh, and that's been unmasked. So the result of paradigm shifts and rapidly changing cultural context is so great that today's church leaders, outreach ministries, have to be as cross-cultural as those of their more traditional ministry missionary counterparts. And there are in much need of, uh, they are as in much need of missionary training to venture across the street as to venture overseas. I think that's clear. This was written about maybe 15 years ago, but it's very clear to us now. 
Furthermore, Eddie Gibbs points out these changes we have described are not uniform within our society, nor in any individual congregation. So, within many congregations, groups exist that represent each of these three mindsets. In one congregation, you could have the traditional people, pre-modern, you can have modern, and you can have post-modern, all in the same congregation, all with different assumptions. And I knew that from my congregation in Montreal. The folk from the West Indies could not understand how their young people were not coming to church, because that's what everybody does. They always come to church. See, and then we had people who were off doing all kinds of new things, crystals and everything. Uh, not quite, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, so um, church leaders, no wonder, we, we find it difficult to have a consensus and set a clear direction. Therefore, in our churches, some people, not many, as I mentioned, are in the pre-modern era, with God at the center and revelation reigning supreme. A large number of people feel comfortable with the way of modernity, that we have been operating under for the last 250 years with humanity at the center and reason reigning supreme based on the dictum I think therefore I am uh, these kind of people value analysis and science as giving the tools to judge what is real right and wrong and you still have uh, hints of that on the CBC when they automatically assume there's a distinction between uh, religion and science you see it's still there but now in postmodernism, with neither God nor modern uh, nor humans at the center. There is no center. Anything goes. And uh, there's a distrust of established institutions and authority, including the church, which have failed us, as witnessed by the turmoil of the last century. Truth is now relative. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. And ambiguity is welcomed. Intuition, how you sense and feel, is regaining ground from mere analysis of facts. Experience is now the key. So we've moved from I belong, therefore I am, of the pre-modern world, to I think, therefore I am, of the modern world, to, to post-modernism, I feel, therefore I am, I shop, therefore I am, I look good, therefore I am, I doubt, therefore I am, and so on in post-modernism. And author Leonard Sweet has said, if the modern era was a rage of order, regulation, stability, singularity, and fixity, the postmodern era is a range is a rage for chaos, uncertainty, otherness, openness, multiplicity, and change. So in reaction, what's our reaction? We may have fear. We're departing from the biblical view of reality where Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, Jesus also taught us that the Holy Spirit is like a wind blowing where he will with no knowledge of where he comes from or where he is going. That's not very modern. It's very postmodern. In modernity, we thought we were on solid ground, but now we are on a tossing sea. And this is not bad, for just as it was for the early explorers, it means we are on a journey to discover new possibilities and ways of being and doing. For Christians, it is a time to question, as Jesus did, the way we have read scripture and in the light of the word of God re-examine our old ways of doing things that may have more to do with our Western culture than God's will. And in terms of our reaching out to engage our society with the gospel, there are new opportunities which include listening patiently, accepting unconditionally, not agreeing necessarily, another story, being humble, being open to scrutiny, being a fellow traveler, interceding and witnessing to God's grace in Christ. 
So the phenomenon of postmodernism has shaped the direction of our culture. And if we are to relate the gospel to our world as it develops uh, a new way of looking at reality, we need to know the air of the culture we breathe. We need to know the air of the culture, the cultural air we breathe. Postmodernism is neither good nor bad. It has its pluses and its minuses. It has both opportunities and pitfalls for the faith. It is simply there. For example, here are elements of the postmodern worldview that are sympathetic to the Christian worldview. Well, maybe you could tell me some. What are good things from the postmodern? Pardon? Experience. experience. Exactly. Experience. That, so, seeing is believing. Which happened first? The Exodus or the explanation of the Exodus? The Israelites experienced the Exodus and then, then the guy had it explained afterwards. The resurrection. Which happened first? The explanation of the resurrection or the resurrection itself? The resurrection happened at first and they had to explain it. See, so that, that came first. Anything else? Uh, importance of community. Maybe? Importance of community. community. Exactly. Yes. Openness. Openness. Yes. Brilliant. Great. I mean, these are all things. There we are. Intuition as a way of perceiving truth. Mm. Very, very important. The intuitive. Mm. The intuitive. Awareness of the supernatural. Mm. Like, like I said, prayer is now. Anybody can pray. May I pray for you? Yes, thank you. And so on. We've talked about the experience, importance of community, as you said, interrelatedness of all of creation. Very, very important. We realize this to our peril. We have admitted that. Curiosity. Pardon? It's curiosity. Curiosity. Excellent. Excellent. I, I, got, I don't have that in here, but I would say holding truth together in paradox. Not everything is easily explained. In Ecclesiastes, you have uh, kind of a contradiction, seemingly a contradiction of uh, Proverbs. In Proverbs, you have contradictions within Proverbs, depending on your on your cult, on your situation. You see, in the same like it's not even different chapters; it's the same chapter. Um, uh, free will and predestination. That's a good one for you. Okay, humility and approach to the truth, patient listening, and unconditional acceptance. Now here are some elements that are antithetic. So we've got subjectivism or experience as the final authority. And that's very dangerous. You're only one person out of seven billion. How can your experience be the ultimate definition of truth? Loss of the meta-narrative. There's no big picture, no center. Anti-rationality. Do away with reason. And the wrong view of tolerance. One of my favorite things here. We have moved from everyone has the right to their own opinion. That's the old definition of tolerance. To now, everyone's opinion is right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But unless, of course, you hold an opinion which is contrary to what the government holds, which is not Canadian values, you see. So then you better watch it. Okay, you don't get your money. All right, with this background, <laughs> We will now look at how we are to carry out our mission having been moved to the margins. All right, ready? Good, okay. So, 
we, this turmoil and questioning and re-examining within Christianity resulting from these two major shifts that the Western Church has undergone is part of the process we're experiencing and it's called marginalization. And Alan Roxborough, who is a Canadian Baptist pastor, uh, author, good, um, and the results of, and it's uh, in his insightful little book, The Missionary Congregation, Leadership and Liminality, just a small book. I think some of the biggest, the impacts of books on me are kind of some of the smallest books. Uh, it's really exciting. Yes. Yeah, but could you define I'm about to do that. Good point. Good question. All right. We're going to talk about this. Okay. Yes. Because that's a fancy word and I hate using fancy words, but he does it. Okay, so we've seen the church was moved from its position at the center of political, economic, and social life under pre-modernism and the Constantinian Christian paradigm to the private sphere of personal belief and practice under modernism, and the church learned to operate relatively successfully under a new paradigm in Western culture by having a monopoly over the private sphere of religious life. I'm coming to liminality in a minute. So... And to demonstrate what Roxbury uses, uh, Roxbury uses an analogy from architecture, which says some of the, what I've just said, but it, it's because it uses architecture, I, I want to put it in here. So, and, um, under, so under pre-modernism, churches and cathedrals served as places of refuge, commerce, and so social organization, as well as worship. Their physical location at the center that's our local church in Sanditon. <laughs> it's actually Lincoln Cathedral. Um, uh, symbolized Christianity's place at the center of culture as an organizing and cohesive force in stark contrast to the rough and tumble structures of the surrounding community. Well, it's now in the city of Lincoln, so I don't think they're rough and tumble, but they were originally. Um, its harmonious interior and exterior design spoke of both God's transcendence and his imminence is being away from us and yet with us at the center and interior of society. Then with the development of modernism and the separation of the world into private and public spheres, religion was no longer at the center and on the inside of society. And the emphasis on church architecture now moved to the steeple. That is a picture of um, Nova Scotia. Bombay, thank you. And there are three churches, but I couldn't get them in because it's too long. All right. Anyway, all with spires pointing in the right direction. Uh, so it's you, we're, we're on the margins, but we're pointing in the right way. You see, this is it. Now, um, so uh, the steeple says the church's role has become a means of connecting the new inside, the secular, with the new outside, the religious. However, with the advent of postmodernism and pluralism, there is now a fragmentation of society, and there is no longer any unifying center, sacred nor secular. We, faced with, we are faced with a plurality of values and ends competing with each other in a free market of beliefs. There are no longer any more architectural models. Instead, nature provides a helpful analogy. Society is more like an <laughs> octopus. Now, book granted, that is a building, <laughs> but it's an octopus building. So actually, architecture has moved on from where it was when Eddie Gibbs wrote that book, or when uh, Roxburgh wrote the book. So there is, um, in the change from pre-modernism to modernism, the church was able to successfully relocate itself on the margins of society. Under the new shift to post-modernism, there is neither center nor margins, 
So the church's attempts to rediscover, to recover the center or a new existence of the margin, on the margins has proved very frustrating. We're all over the place. And Roxburgh uses the concept of liminality to describe, to explain the experience of marginalization of the church as going, going through. Now liminality is a term which describes the transition process accompanying a change of state or social position. Liminality describes the transition process accompanying a change of state or social position. Here's an example. The term has been described, has been applied to rites of passage in pre-industrial cultures. And in these situations, individuals about to enter a new level of social status, such as adulthood, are detached from their existing role in society as children, placed in some liminal state out in the bush or whatever, usually involving religious ritual, following which they return as transformed individuals, having survived their time in the bush, etc., etc., <coughs> and uh, that they have a new place in status. But during the liminal state, when you're out there in the bush, participants lose their former identity, become invisible to wider society, only to reappear with a new identity. So in a liminal state, there is an initial period of confusion and vulnerability with the sense of being an outsider. The initial inclination is a drive towards returning to the former state, but this is not possible. The only resolution is to move forward to integration, reintegration with a new identity and a new sense of purpose. So in this detached state of uh, liminality with its loss of identity and accompanying invisibility that Roxburgh says the church is facing at the present. We are all at sea. So, we are now, in relation to our culture, we are betwixt and between. It's clear that the church has wanted to return to the previous states of adjustment with society, but society, that society no longer exists. And uh, Roxburgh points out that congregations and leaders are only now realizing their new situation and must learn how to live the gospel as a distinct people who are no longer at the cultural center. Things have changed, we are on the margins, but we need not fall into despair. There is an opportunity that God has given us through the value of change. And this is my final point. So for the church, in spite of the discomfort of being in the liminal state, it provides a great opportunity to reassess our distinctiveness and basic calling, to throw aside the syncretism with our non-biblical cultural conceptions of reality that have either hindered or uh, that have hindered and compromised our nature, mission, and ministry. Whenever the people of God have been marginalized in the past, those changes have provided new opportunities to experience the reality and faithfulness of God and to grow in relationship with Him. There is a value of being on the margins, even though it's uncomfortable. So here we go. Biblical examples. Can you think of some biblical examples of God's people on the margins? Abraham. Abraham, exactly. There we go. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll go, we'll go chronologically. Right. Abraham moved from er, the Chaldees, they had flush toilets and so on, to Canaan, the backwoods. All right. After Abraham, we had... Well, the whole story of Israel. Exactly. Well, 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 well actually, we'll, we'll just move it. Let's, let's get Joseph. He was in prison. 
you know, he learned an awful lot by being in prison, right? Jailed. I mean, he was the uh, he was the uh, the poster boy back home, you know. And I'm having all these dreams. You're going to bow down to me, and then he is thrown in jail. What about the uh, the guys that uh, he was a baby slave, but uh, Moses? Moses. Yeah. There we go. You got it. You're right on time. There. Okay. Um, you know, uh, Moses uh, taken. Uh, he was a slave, and then he was taken over by the royal family, and so on. Then he's off in the wilderness for 40 years, and then, of course, the whole people of Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years completely liminal on the margins no country to call them own their own social religious military threat but it's during this time that god revealed himself to them and gave gave them the law in their liminal state in their marginalized state that's when god met them wow god met moses god met you know, on the mountain god met uh, uh, israel Elijah, um, dear old Elijah, one of my favorite guys, depressed and so on, marginalized under Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, and, you know, and he got so depressed, he was on the margins, literally. But God spoke to him. And then finally, into the Old Testament, the exile. The, uh, the, the children of Israel experienced marginalization as a conquered race. They finally learned God's holiness and universality and understood their call as a missionary people and it was during that time that our, our Old Testament was formulated and brought into, into being um, you know, all the old records were, were taken up and so on because of course they had no temple so they had the word so that's really for those of us who are Bible believing Christians that is a huge state but they were marginalized you know, by the waters of Babylon we lay down and wept now, of course, how about Jesus? Mm. We're in Lent. Jesus was how many days in the wilderness? 40 days. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> yeah, right, okay. 40 days, like Israel. Um, and uh, time of temptations, a tense time of liminality. Uh, during that, he set the pattern for dealing with the temptations he was about to face throughout his entire ministry to abandon his God-given mission and the suffering that would entail. It happened then, you know, turn these stones into bread, take the easy way out, if you're really God's son, etc., etc. In the middle of his ministry, you know, who do you say that I am? You know, you're, you're Jesus the Christ and, and I'm going to die. Oh, no, you're not. Get behind me, Satan. Again, the temptation to take the easy route out. And finally, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have Jesus being tempted. Lord, let this pass from me. 